Oh, well, good morning, church. I got like three responses. We're going to try that again. All right, you ready? I'm going to make sure you're awake. Take a deep breath in. Deep breath out. Good morning, church. There we go. Hi, guys. In case we haven't met, my name is Noah Satterfield. I am a uh, worship slash young adult intern here at Emmaus Road. Um, and I would love to just start the morning in prayer because I know my heart always needs prayer. And especially before we enter into the throne room of God. So why don't you stand and we'll, we'll enter into a time of worship. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and to worship you. Um, regardless of the w craziness of the world's circumstances. Um, I just pray right now that any, any burdens and worries that we're bringing in this morning into your throne room, that we would lay them at your feet, God, because you, you died for all the burdens that we carry, God. And we thank you for these things, and we thank you for your son's matchless name. Amen. start that because my brain's not there. Sorry. Here we go. Safely 
I can, there I am. I want to just uh, welcome you. If you are new, brand new in the room this morning, or if you've been here just a few times, uh, welcome to Emmaus Road Church. I'm Mike Satterfield, the pastor. This is Noah Satterfield, my clone that we ordered from South Korea many years ago. And um, yeah, <laughs> you'll meet the whole Sadie clan, I'm sure. Uh, a couple of things I just want to make you aware of in the life of our church. Uh, life groups are starting in the next week or two. Uh, we still need some equipped leaders. We realize there are a lot of, there's a large influx of people coming into our church, and some of you coming in have experience with ministry. You've led life groups. You've led small groups. would love to connect with you. We, we just have more uh, need for more groups than we've ever had uh, previously, and so um, just... There's a sign-up sheet in the, in the hallway on the table. If you would just write your name, your information, your social security number, check account routing number, all of those things down out there, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> number next, baptism is happening uh, September 12th at Iverson Beach. The time is to be announced. We're looking at the tide charts right now, trying to figure out when we don't have to hike a half mile out to find water deep enough to baptize at Iverson. So... Uh, we also don't want it all the way up, you know, so people are slugging through the mud uh, just trying to get to the baptism service. So uh, we'll, we'll be announcing the time that that'll happen, but it is September 12th. And so uh, if you've never been baptized, never followed the Lord in believer's baptism as a born-again Christian, I would encourage you to, uh, again, sign, uh, sign up out in the hallway or talk to me personally. I'd, lo I'd love to get together with you and talk about that. Um, two more things. Uh, next steps is today from 1 to 3. So again, if you're new or newer to the church, you haven't gone through the membership process, um, this is your opportunity to come to my house at 1 o'clock today and to have some snacks, some drinks, as we talk through kind of our vision and mission as a church, and then uh, hand you some things to take home as you prayerfully consider whether or not this is going to be your home church. And so I would encourage you to do that. There's no obligation. You don't have to get the tattoo today. Um, when you sign the membership covenant, we'll talk about the rest of that. And last, um, you know, we, sell, we set some goals when we planted this church three and a half years ago. We publicly launched February 19th of 2017. And the three goals we set were to be self-sustaining. I had raised a bunch of support from other people all over the nation to help us get started. We wanted to be self-sustaining, and, and we've, we've hit that goal. We wanted to be self-governing. We were under a church in Monroe, their, their governing board, kind of being our proxy board until we got on our feet. We, we had three elders at one point, and then the Shrocks, God, God moved them on, and so then we were down to two. We, we were close to having three, potentially five elders in the next couple of months. I'm really excited. So, so we're at the place of being self-governing. So self-sustaining, self-governing. But the third goal is self-replicating. Because we believe that the best way to reach the lost is to plant churches. And I just want to tell you that this week for me was a renewal and a refocusing of that passion for me. I got to serve for the second time as an assessor at a church planting assessment center in Puyallup. And so we do multiple church planting assessments all over the nation all year long. And we take people who think, we think God's called us a church plant. And we run them through a grid, high pressure for four or five days. And we look for these 16 building blocks that really indicate that they are could potentially be the point person in a church plant. And so at the end of that week, we tell them they're recommended, they're conditionally recommended, or they're not recommended. 
And uh, we just went through that this week. And, and there were two couples that I, I hope that in the days ahead you'll have the opportunity to meet. One of them in particular is um, a couple from Iran that has immigrated to the U.S. Uh, he, he speaks Persian, almost no English, <laughs> and, and Farsi. And she speaks a little bit of broken English. And then their 20-something-year-old son translates for them. But they are amazing, and they're planting in Everett. They're planting an Iranian church in Everett. So um, I, I want us to, to regain, uh, I don't say us, I want me, I want myself to regain the passion and focus for planting churches. And so I hope that in the days ahead, you'll have the opportunity to meet these folks, Reza and Jamila, and uh, also John and Aaron Waller. So um, that's all I've got for you this morning. Uh, I encourage you. As you worship today, that part of your worship would be to give generously to the kingdom through the local church, and, um, and that God would move in your hearts today by grace. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord, we just thank you for your goodness. We have a place to meet. We're out of the way. We're out of sight. Your people can gather here. We worship you freely. Um, we just don't want to take that for granted today. So many of our brothers and sisters, even in this community and in this region, uh, th- their churches are not open. They're not willing to do what we're doing. And, and we're, not, we're not coming to you with an attitude that we're better or we're, uh, we're more righteous, Lord. We, we, just, we just thank you for your grace. We just thank you for your mercy and loving kindness to us. And we ask that you continue to manifest your spirit and, and uh, impart the gospel and, and, and more of your spirit to us as we worship and as we sit under the teaching of your word today that we might go from this place with a renewed spirit ready to share the gospel with those who are lost. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship together.
Oh, 
Thank you. 
now, Lord, in our hearts, and we thank you. We get to be in your presence, and not just in your presence, but we get to have your Holy Spirit in us. Lord, we rejoice in that reality. We thank you. We don't want to take it for granted. So use it to help us in this moment to hear your word, to take it into our hearts, and to apply it to our lives. We ask in your name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thanks, Noah. We are in Daniel. We have been, uh, this is 15 weeks in a series called Living in Babylon. And we are this morning engaging with what many theologians believe the most challenging text in the entire book of Daniel. I remember way back when the Rubik's Cube was invented. 
And I confess to you this morning freely that I have never solved the Rubik's Cube. And at this point in my life, I just don't care to. I was so confounded by that thing. And it was confounding to a lot of people. But in truth, there is a pattern to it. And once you learn that pattern to unravel the Rubik's Cube, solving the puzzle is actually quite easy. Or so I'm told. I would submit to you this morning that the same thing is true for Daniel 9. It's a confusing text to many Christians, even many scholars, but if we take our time, we learn the pattern, then solving the puzzle will become easy for us. And an essential component of solving the puzzle is the identity of this person in the text called the Mashiach Nagib, the Messiah, the Prince. And as blood-bought, born-again Christians, I hope that's everybody in the room, but we know who that person is. We know that it is Jesus of Nazareth, but there are many who do not yet have this key piece of information that we possess. I was reading a story this week of Leopold Kohn, who was a rabbi in Europe in the late 1800s, and he had been studying as a Jewish rabbi this passage in Daniel chapter 9, just immersed in it, and, and, um, and he, he couldn't he, he got to verses 25 and 26, and, and he concluded from his own studies that the Messiah had already come. But he couldn't look back in history and figure out who this person was. He couldn't identify him. So he went to another older rabbi, and he asked him, he said, where is Mashiach? And that rabbi didn't know either. But for some weird reason, this other rabbi said, you know, I think he might be in New York City. So Leopold sold everything that he had and booked passage on a ship to America and came to New York City. And now that he was in New York City, he had no strategy, no plan of attack, no, no knowledge of what to do. Rabbi Leopold just began to wander up and down the streets of New York every day looking for the Messiah. And one night, he walked right past the open door of a gospel mission, and he heard the sound of singing. So he went in and sat down, and it was there in the back of that room in New York City hearing this preacher talk about Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, that Leopold Cohen gave his life to Jesus. And he went on to have his own gospel ministry meetings and started Chosen People Ministries in New York, and all because a Jewish rabbi stopped to read and, and study the ninth chapter of Daniel. Now, to fully appreciate the remarkable significance of what we're going to unpack this morning, it's essential to realize that the book of Daniel, along with the rest of what we call the Old Testament, was translated into Greek prior to 270 B.C. So that's almost three centuries before the birth of Christ. You're going to get all these liberal scholars that say there's no way that Daniel could have been written before because there's too much detail in predicting exactly what came to pass before it ever happened. We don't believe that that is possible, so we have to date the book much later, right? And so it's like, well, you can't because, um, because the whole Old Testament was translated into Greek almost 300 years before Christ was born. So we know that we have Daniel in the Septuagint, so well-established fact of history. Um, we talked about earlier in the study in Daniel how uh, the conquest of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, Alexander came uh, co conquering them. He promoted the Greek language. We called it Hellenization, right? He, he spread the Greek culture and language all through the conquered lands that he had taken over. And so almost everybody in the known world at that time spoke Greek. 
and could read Greek. Hebrew had fallen into disuse, being reserved primarily for ceremonial purposes. It's kind of the way that Roman Catholics use Latin today, right? They don't go around speaking Latin to each other, but they use it for ceremonial purposes. And so in order to make the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament at that time, available to the average Jewish reader, a project was undertaken by Hebrew scholars to translate the Hebrew text into Greek. This is uh, done by 70 scholars who were commissioned to complete this work, and their work is known today as the Septuagint, or shorthand LXX, which is the Latin numeral for 70, 70 scholars, right? So it's important for us to remember this, uh, that the book of Daniel existed in documented form almost three centuries before Jesus Christ was ever born in Bethlehem. This is really important for us as we go to Daniel 9 and pick up in verse 20 together this morning. So look at the text with me. If you have your Bible or your mobile device, we're in Daniel 9, verses 20 to 27. And we'll read through the text and then go back and unpack it. Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and, and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled times. And after the 62 weeks... An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall, be put, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let me know if you got all that. It's a lot. It's a lot of code words there, Bible code words that we just don't use and don't typically traffic in, and so it's really confusing. So let's go back to verse 20 and 21. While I was speaking and praying, Daniel said, I was confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, right, Mount Zion. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight in the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, if you remember last week, if you were here, we talked about the need for biblically informed prayers rooted in God's word. And we made the case for the constancy and the consistency of fervent prayer in the church. And so then now we see where that leads, right, in the text. We see that this leads to God bringing information, bringing knowledge, bringing his word to Daniel. And so we, we see this phrase here. It comes by the man Gabriel, quote unquote. And it could be the case that Daniel mistakenly thinks Gabriel is a man because he looks human. But, but I think what's actually being said here in the text is that Gabriel looks like a human, not that he is a human, 
right? And we know that uh, you'll see in chapter 10 that Gabriel is one who comes in the likeness of the children of men. So he's not human, um, but this is his appearance here in the text is for Daniel's sake, because truly uh, seeing an angel face to face is a terrifying thing. There's this really odd, consistent thing that happens anytime people see angels in the Bible, they all end up on their face. Just terrified, just flat on their face. And that's not a, that's, that's a common, that's, that's the norm, right? Because angels are terrifying. They're, they're celestial beings. They're radiant and majestic. They're angels. So it's crazy because there are angels in the room with us right now. And thank you for not showing yourselves. Church will be over. <laughs> We'd all be done. But note that Daniel says that Gabriel came at the time of the evening sacrifice. The only thing is, and this is crazy, there hasn't been an evening sacrifice since the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., so almost 70 years prior to this moment. How remarkable that Daniel still marks time according to the temple sacrifices that haven't happened in seven decades. Man, that is devotion of the highest order. And Daniel's saying, he came to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. It's like, dude. It hasn't been an evening sacrifice, but that's Daniel. That's Daniel. He's so devoted to God and his ways. And then verse 22, he said, he made me to understand, speaking with me, saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. <coughs> what a blessing. What a blessing to hear the angel Gabriel say to you, you are greatly loved. Can you imagine what it would do for you to have an angel appear to you and after you got up off the floor and were able to stand to say, God loves you so much. He loves you deeply. Man, that's just tied to Daniel's incredible unwavering devotion and obedience to God, but not in the way that you might think. See, we're, we're prone to fall back into the flesh and into fleshly thinking. And we look at Daniel as this obedient, good follower of God. But the reality is that Daniel was obedient and good because God loved him and he received that love and let it change him. Like God didn't love him because he was obedient and good because you couldn't be obedient enough or good enough. And the same is true of each one of us. If we will let the love of God change us so that we walk in obedience, that's the paradigm, right? To hear God say, you are greatly loved. What a privilege. And then verse 24. And now we get to the really fun stuff. Right? You ready? Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Speaking to Daniel, Daniel's a Jew. We're talking about the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now this verse here, 20, 24, deals with the scope of, of this prophecy, the breadth of it, the, the entire prophecy. This is kind of the macro at the front end. This one verse sums up the history of the Jewish people from Daniel's day to the return of Jesus Christ. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city, Daniel was told. Now, we need to take a minute here and, and, and um, establish our terminology because we're using the word weeks here in the text, but we don't mean seven days. 
So we got to remember that the Jews measure time in units, the Greeks measure time in units, but they use different units. So the word decade, we, we've adopted the more Greek system, and we think in tens, and so we talk about a decade denoting a period of 10 years, right? That's the language we use. But the Jews measured time in sevens rather than tens. So the Jewish or Hebrew equivalent to a decade of 10 years for us is the Hebrew Shabuah or a week. It's a period of seven years. That's how they reckon time, right? Seven's a big deal. And so, um, so these 70, uh, 70 of these weeks of years indicate a period of 490 years. And this is the penalty that's given to Daniel's people, the Jews, in the holy city of Jerusalem. 70 weeks or 490 years, okay? So when you see weeks, don't think seven days, think seven years. In verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it should be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled times. So now, so, so we saw the scope, the breadth, the whole of the prophecy. Now, Daniel's, Gabriel's zooming in for Daniel to say, okay, so then this is what the first 69 weeks look like, this first bulk of it. Um, and so every seventh year in the Jewish calendar is called a Sabbath year, a Shabbat, right? Sabbath year. And, and it's a special celebration, and the land is supposed to lie fertile, and everybody's supposed to just relax and enjoy each other and take a rest, not just every seven days, but every seven years. And so then you get seven times seven of those uh, Shabuas or Sabbaths, and then you get a special celebration year every 50th year called, uh, it's called a Jubilee year, right? So it's worth remembering that the Jewish calendar has, by the way, 360 days, of 12 months of 30 days each, not the 365 and a quarter days that we have. So, th- so there's going to be some math later. Don't check out, right? If I heard a pastor preaching and said there's going to be math later, I'd be like, I'm out. Just hang in there, okay? I'm going to put it on the screen. Uh, Leviticus 25, verses 3 and 4, uh, tells the Jews, part of God's law, he says, for six years you can sow in your field, for six years prune your vineyards and gather its fruit, but in the seventh year there will be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. Give the land a break and a Sabbath unto the Lord, and you will not sow in your field or prune your vineyard. So a Sabbath day every week, a Sabbath year every seven years, and a Jubilee year every 50th year after seven sevens, right? And so then we get to verse 26 here in the text. Listen to this. And then after those 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, shall be, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So now we've got an interval. Not just the first 69 weeks, but now we have this interval happening. Because there appears to be a gap between the 69th week in verse 25 and the 70th week in verse 27, which we'll get to in just a minute. So what, what, we're, what we're reading here is that 69 weeks of the 70 weeks of this prophecy have been fulfilled already, historically. And we'll, we'll go back and trace that in just a moment so that you can see it. But that reality, that 69 of the 70 weeks of this prophecy have already been fulfilled, should give us complete confidence that the 70 weeks, 70th week is real, and it is imminent, and it is coming. Because we can look back and see all the others. And so, so nobody in, in the room this morning really wants to say in their heart, yeah, I get that, like 69, but the 70th thing, like that's just, pff, that's not real. No, it's coming. It's coming. The 62 weeks 
follow the initial seven weeks. So verse 26 deals with the events after the 69th week of Daniel, but before the 70th. So there's this interval, this gap. And these events include the Messiah being killed and the city and sanctuary of Messiah being destroyed. So the Messiah, of course, Jesus, executed at the crucifixion, but not for himself, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And the city and the sanctuary were destroyed 38 years later when the Roman legions under Titus Vespasian leveled the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It was just what Daniel and Jesus predicted would happen, happened. He was of, Titus was of the people of the prince who is to come, which tells us that whoever this future ruler is and the, and the, the empire is, is rooted in the ancient Roman empire. Uh, so whatever's coming in the, in the, will be an outgrowth, and that can encompass any part of Western civilization because all Western civilization is really ro- rooted in Greco-Roman culture. Um, as as a, an aside here, before we go on to more of the prophecy, I want to just say that God's plan for Israel has not abated. God hasn't given up on the Jewish people, as some would have us believe. Nor have the events of the past or the punishments and persecutions of the Jews and the things that they've endured neglected or, or diminished in any way God's covenant promises to Israel. Listen to me. There, there is, a, there is a, a school of thought out there that, that would say, yes, that, that, that's diminished. It's, uh, God's done with them. He's replaced them in his covenants. But I, I just want you to know, too many careless Christians confuse God's punishment and discipline with him having abandoned his covenant people. And, and those who enter into covenant with God may indeed fail to keep their part of the covenant, but God never does. God never fails to keep covenant. He never breaks covenant. You don't want to ever be in the place where you would say, God breaks covenant. That's not something you want to be saying as a follower of Jesus. And and to assert that he does impugns his character in a way that you just don't want to do. And it's what makes replacement theology, this idea that God's replaced Israel in his covenants with the church, so reprehensible. We have not replaced Israel. We have been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Okay, we haven't replaced them. In fact, that's precisely what Romans 9 and 10 and 11 is about. It's about the fact that God's not done with Israel. So, uh, but, but, but here we have this prophecy in Daniel that's not completely fulfilled. We're living in this pause or this parenthesis just prior to its completion. And then look at verse 27 and we'll, we'll uh, unpack this. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of, the ab- of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the 70th week. So there is a remaining seven-year period that has to be fulfilled. This period, future, is the most documented period in the whole Bible. The Bible has more to say about this seven years than any other time in history. The book of Revelation, chapter 6 to 19, is essentially a detailing of this climactic period. The interval between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week con- continues, but it's increasingly apparent that it's soon going to be over. And, and the more we're familiar with end times prophecy, the more it seems that Daniel's 70th week is just on the horizon. It's coming. It's coming. So this prophecy in Daniel 9 is what we call a split prophecy. It has a near application and then it has a really far application. It has a very near fulfillment and then it has a far fulfillment. And that can be confusing for people. So let me just share a couple of examples of split prophecies 
uh, in the Bible because it's more common than you realize at first, right? Let me just, let me walk you through this. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Well, this one's actually really easy. Isaiah 61 is easy because Jesus himself helps us out personally. In Luke chapter 4, we're told after Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and nights, being tempted by the evil one, fasting, he came to Nazareth in Luke 4, 16, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. It says the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. Now, now stop, because you need to know that the Jews are on a Bible reading plan that's an annual plan, and every year it just turns over. So on this particular day, this was the text that was that reading for that Sabbath, okay? So, so you need to know that coincidence is not a kosher word. There's no such thing as coincidence in God's economy. So Jesus unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. He's reading the reading for this day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stop. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, now he's going to expound. He says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. Did he just claim to be the Messiah in Luke 4? Yeah. And you know, you know how you can know that? Because almost every time Jesus does it in the Gospels, they try to kill him. And that's the next thing that happens. They take him out, try to throw him off a cliff because he claimed to be the Messiah, right? But what about in, in Isaiah 61, that last part of verse 2 that says, the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. What about that? Because he didn't even finish verse 2 in his reading. Well, the answer is this is a split prophecy. Though the Old Testament has it all lumped together, there was a near and a far application, right? Jesus didn't go on in his reading to the part about the day of God's vengeance because that's still future. That's still future. He's reading the part about the first coming of the Messiah and saying, this is, this is being fulfilled right here, right now. I'm here. I'm here. And so J- Jesus is, well, he gives us another example. Let's, uh, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Reads like this, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for, for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, this, this branch, this offspring, this descendant, will reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell, dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Well, well there's a split here in verse 5 of Jeremiah 23. Because God raised up a righteous branch from the lineage of David. His name was Jesus Christ. He's a descendant of David. But Jesus has never reigned as king. He's never sat on David's throne. Even though he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's never had a political kingdom on this earth. It's coming. It's coming. But you look at the text here in Jeremiah 23 and you see phrases like, He he will deal wisely as a king, executing justice, All of Judah will be saved. All of that's still future. This is a split prophecy. And if you want a preview of Jesus' justice during the millennial reign, I suggest you begin with Psalm 2. It's 
It's brutal. But this is why Jesus wept at the triumphal entry. He's entering into Jerusalem on what what we call Lamb Selection Day, the triumphal entry. They're going to select the lambs that they're going to use a week later for Passover. And he's presenting himself as the Lamb of God. And the people knew many of these messianic prophecies that I just read to you, and they were even largely convinced that Jesus was, or at least could be, the Messiah. But their expectations were for 100% fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. They didn't understand this near-far split prophecy thing. Jesus knew this. He knew that they expected him to defeat and expel the Romans and to return the kingdom to Israel right then. And he wept because they had missed the most important part of Daniel's prophecy here in chapter 9, that the Messiah would come and die, that he would be cut off from his people for the sake of their sins. They missed it. And to this point, we've seen plenty of prophecies in Daniel dealing with the Gentile nations, and God is now reminding his people that he's not forgotten them. God isn't done with them. He's reminding them and us of this fact. And so Daniel states there are going to be seven sevens and then 62 sevens. That comes to 483 biblical years, remember, 360 days. And history tells us that on March 14th, 445 B.C., there was a decree that was given, issued by the Persian king Artaxerxes Langemanus to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If you were here, it was a year ago, two years ago, we were studying through Nehemiah. Um, we, we talked about this. Uh, that decree, March 14th, 445 B.C., and exactly to the day, April 6th, 32 A.D., Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. It's crazy. He fulfilled it. These 69 weeks have been fulfilled. Jesus presented himself as the Messiah. Listen to the text out of the Gospels. He descends the Mount of Olives, approaching the city. And the multitudes, what were they doing? They're, they're all crying out. You remember the scene? They're throwing down their coats in front of the donkey, in front of the colt, and they're waving the palm branches, which are the national symbol of Israel. They were minted on the coinage. It's kind of like our stars and stripes. This is, this is not a peace, oh, brother, like peace, man. You know, it wasn't that kind of rally. It was a, it was a let's overthrow the Romans. We're, the Messiah is here. And they're waving palm branches, and they're making a path for him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a prophecy out of Psalm 118.26. And they're praising God joyfully with loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. But the Pharisees, therefore, said to one another, they're kind of huddled over on the side, and they're like, you see, we're not doing any good here. Like we have tried and tried and tried to blow this dude up, and look, look what's happening. It says the whole world's going after him. And so some of the Pharisees who were in the crowd, probably the younger guys who hadn't learned to keep their mouth shut yet, they, they went to Jesus, and they, they told him, they said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What were they doing? Hosanna! Hosanna! Messiah is here! And the Roman legions just ride up the hill. It's like, stop. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these become silent, even the stones will cry out. Even the stones will cry out. Messiah is here. When he approached, it says he saw the city, and he began to weep over the city, saying, if you had only known in this day, even you, the things that make for peace. You see, you want political peace. You want to be delivered militarily. That's not the peace that I'm bringing to you right now. I'm bringing peace with God, forgiveness for your sins, and you're missing it. 
He says, but now these things have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a siege mound before you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is in fulfillment of Daniel's 69 weeks, and Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling that right now. You are missing it. You are missing it. And we know that just less than 40 years later in AD 70, the Roman army besieged Jerusalem, killed more than a million Jews. The Roman legion leveled the city, completely fulfilling Christ's prophecy that not one stone would be left upon another. The temple was destroyed, taken apart stone by stone because they wanted to melt down all the gold that had lined the inner walls of the inner temple. So let's just do the math. Let's just do the math together. We're going to work backwards from our calendar dates to follow the computations, and I'll put the numbers on the screen. And if you want my notes, let me know. From March 14, 445 B.C., that's the date of the command to rebuild Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem, to March 14, A.D. 32, is 173,740 days. So let's try to go same date of the year, same date of the year, right? And then add 24 days now to get us up to April 6th, which is the day Christ came into Jerusalem on the donkey, on Lamb Selection Day, Palm Sunday. And then add 116 days that occurred during this period that are leap days. We've got we to make up for that time that they don't count, and that's thanks to the Royal Observatory of Greenwich, UK. They calculated this for us, so the math is much better than what I would produce. And these numbers added together total 173,880 days, which is the exact duration of Daniel's 69 weeks of years. Probably just a coincidence. Just a fluke, right? Some of you are sitting there, you astute Bible scholars are going, wait a minute, I thought you said there were 70 weeks. That's only 69 weeks. That's right. God stopped his prophetic watch. The 70th and final week is owed uh, by Israel. It's yet to come. We call it the seven-year tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the 70th week of seven, seven years, a week of seven years that remains to be fulfilled in our generation. Daniel 9.24, we're specifically told that the 70 weeks are decreed for Daniel's people, the Jews. The first 69 weeks are Uh, deal with the Jewish people and God's witness to the world through his chosen people. And then the final 70th week of seven years will again focus on God's dealing with Israel and judgment of the world through unprecedented events. After the destruction uh, of Jerusalem back in AD 70 and the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, just think about what happened to the Jews. They were taken into captivity, dispersed throughout Europe and Asia. They left the promised land fearing for their lives. And wherever they lived, They never forgot their roots. They never forgot the promises of God that were given to their forefathers. God said, I will make you a great nation. They never forgot that. The land became a wasteland, a barren wasteland, not fit for humans or animals. At one point, Mark Twain went to Israel, um, and, and he said, it's so desolate. It's a dry and arid place where trees aren't seen for miles. The land and the people are as one. As go the, the land, so goes the people. As go the people, so go the land. And, and as long as they were obedient to God and worshiping God and obeying God, the land would flourish, but disobedience would bring despair and, and they would be shut out of the land. Now, this is important, this addendum here. Because Israel did not repent 
of its sins at the end of the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. So you need to understand what's happening now because this impacts it. Some of the Jews did return to the promised land, but the majority simply settled in the Persian Empire, what we now call Iran and Iraq. So the question becomes, how long until God would regather the Jews and restore them back to, to the land of Israel as a nation, as a, as a people? And they had been a split house, remember? The thing that ha- happened early with the splitting of the kingdom under Solomon's kids, and then, and then suddenly the land's divided, and you've got Judah in the south and Israel in the north, and the, the tribes are divided. And um, there's this prophecy in Ezekiel that when God restores Israel to its land, that they will be one people again. They won't be a divided house. So when, when did that happen? The solution to the mystery is found in Leviticus 26, 18. God says, if after all this, you still won't listen to me, you've been through 70 years of, of exile, and you're not listening, and you're not repentant, he says, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. In other words, if Israel doesn't repent, the punishment promise is going to be multiplied by seven. So, so now you've got you to step back and go, where else do we see some of these prophecies? Ezekiel, so helpful to us. Because he, like Daniel, was captured and carried off to Babylon. He was only there for about 20 years. But like Daniel, he also knew the prophecies in the book of Jeremiah that we've looked at in the last weeks. And he knew that the Babylonian captivity would only be 70 years. And so the Lord gave Ezekiel a vision. And in the vision in uh, verses 3 through 6 of Ezekiel 4, listen to what he says to do. I, I used to think, I would love to be an Old Testament prophet. And then I read Ezekiel and I was like, no. And then I read Jeremiah, and I was like, no, 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 no. It's like you have this glamorous notion of what a prophet is. It's like, uh-uh. Because they had to live out and demonstrate whatever it was God was saying. And so listen to what he tells Ezekiel to do. He says, I want you to take an iron griddle and make some pancakes, Ezekiel. Not what the text says, unfortunately. He says, I want you to place it like an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face towards it and let it be in a state of siege. And press the siege against that iron griddle, for it's a sign to the house of Israel. Then I want you, Ezekiel, to lay down on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it for the number of days that you lie on it. So I want you to lay on the griddle, and you shall bear their punishment. Now, it wasn't hot, but still, laying on a griddle. He says, here's the number of days I assigned to you, the number of days equal to the number of years of their punishment. I want you to lay on the griddle for 390 days. Ooh, I want to be a prophet. I want you to lay on the griddle for 390 days, equal to the number of years for their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you've completed that, Ezekiel, lay down a second time, roll over, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you each day for a year. So that's 390 years for the house of Israel, 40 years for the house of Judah. Judah. It's 430 years. So you got 430 years of punishment, subtracting the 70 years Israel's already served in Babylonian captivity. So now Israel owes God 360 years of punishment, multiplied seven times. It's 2,520 biblical years of 360 days each. So when did the punishment begin? Because if we're going to see when it ended, we've got to know when it started. From the Bible and from other historical sources, including the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, the end of the Babylonian captivity occurred in the spring of 536 B.C., Okay, that's our starting point. So 2,520 biblical years times 360 uh, to get the days 
is 907,200 days. I'm losing some of you on the math. Okay, I'm trying to put it on the, on the screen here. I'm going to convert the figure. If you have your calculator, uh, our calendar year, 365.25 days divided into 907,200 days. We reach a total. Here's the, here's the number, 2,483.8 calendar years. And those calculations, remember, between 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. is no zero year. It's, there's, no, there's no zero, right? So here's where we end up, May 14th, 1948. What happened on May 14th, 1948? The nation of Israel was reborn. Shocked the world. Proclaimed their independence, even while six Arab nations simultaneously prepared to invade that tiny country and destroy it at its inception again. Sudden and unprovoked onslaught of the armies of Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, and volunteer forces from Saudi Arabia that converged upon Israel. It's like David and Goliath all over again, right? And, and, and so to any intelligent observer, it was obvious that the Arabs were going to make short work of this undermanned, under-equipped Jewish nation. If Israel was going to survive, it would take a miracle. That's exactly what happened. By God's grace, the outnumbered, outgunned Israelis were victorious. And I just got to tell you, humanly speaking, there's no way to account for that. There's just no way to account for that. This continual survival, even to this day, is an even greater miracle. Never in history has such a thing happened. That a nation ceased to be a nation, went into exile, dispersion, we call it the diaspora. And then suddenly, here they are again, in their own land, a nation again. From being scattered around the world for over 2,500 years, they returned to the original piece of real estate that God promised them. Amazingly, their culture, their customs, their religious and dietary laws remain intact. That's an act of God, folks. And with the restoration of Israel on May 14, 1948, I believe that God restarted the prophetic watch again. I firmly believe that when that six-pointed star of David ascended for the first time over the newly established nation of Israel, that the countdown to the present age began. The rebirth of Israel is the key sign around which all other prophetic signs begin to appear. And I just want you to know it can't be undone. It can't be rolled back. Israel can't be unbecome a nation. They can't stop speaking Hebrew again. Prophecy is set in motion um, such that other predicted events will also fall into place. And they all lead to one final conclusion, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's where we're headed. So what? So what? Great information, Sadie. Math overload. So what? Well, two things. Number one, prophecy is God's imprimatur. That's great. Why are you speaking Latin to me? What does that mean? An imprimatur is the king's signet. You ever see... Uh, a movie uh, where the king has the signet ring, he's writing the letter out or he's dictating a letter and he's sending it to his general who's 300 miles away because they didn't have cell phones. And he, and he wants the general to begin the siege of the castle or the siege of the city. The general's got the army there, he's waiting on orders. And so the king will write a letter and say, begin the siege, conquer them, you know, whatever he's going to tell them the orders are. And then he folds that up through some hot wax and then he presses his signet into that wax. Why? Well, one is to seal it so that when the general gets the letter, it's not he can tell if it's been opened or not or tampered with. But that signet that bears the king's seal means it's from him. 
because he's the only one that has that. That's proof that it's from the king. That's imprimatur, okay? There are 308 precise prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming of Messiah. 308 exacting prophecies about the first coming of Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of those perfectly in every detail. 308. Now, for every one of those prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, there are eight times as many about the second coming. It is the most sure event in history, and it has yet to happen. Prophecy proves that this is God's word. It's not man's best thoughts about God. It's God's revelation to man. It's his word to us. Prophecy proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that what we have in the Bible is God's sure word. And we can rest in it. And what he says is true. And what he says will come to pass will come to pass. That's number one. So what? Well, that's a big so what. Here's number two. Time is short. Time is short. These are not the days for us, church, to be shrinking back in fear when it comes to making Jesus known. These are not the days for shrinking back. These are the days of holy boldness in proclaiming the truth about Jesus as the Messiah, our Savior and our King. These are the days of forsaking our comfort and our ease and laboring in the field with the owner of the the field, bringing in the harvest as he calls us to. That's what we're called to do right now. And didn't he already tell us that the fields were white or ripe unto harvest? So, So then my question is like, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? And what a privilege to be called into the harvest field with the master of the field. What are we waiting for? So the next time somebody tells you to check your privilege, you tell them you just can't. Because Jesus called you to labor with him, and that's an incredible privilege that you're not going to give up. Can't check my privilege. Jesus called me. I can't wait to be in the field with him, laboring, sharing the gospel. Jesus is coming, church. I'm not saying, so look busy. Jesus is coming, so look busy. I'm not saying that. Jesus is coming, so let's get busy. Let's get busy about the Great Commission. Man, I hope this excites you. I hope looking at this reality and seeing the reality puts you in a different frame of mind about the mission because we've got an unknown amount of time left. We don't know how fast the the clock is ticking and when it's going to stop, but we need to be found faithful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just stopped this morning and we come to you and I just prayed that in this moment every person in the room would just, just take a pause and we would just confess any personal sin. Anything that's happening in our lives right now that would, that would hinder our devotion, hinder our obedience, that would come between us and you, that would get in the way of obedience. Lord, we want to confess it. We want to be rid of it. We want to we put it aside, put it behind us. We don't want to look back. Cleanse your people in these moments and renew us as we confess our sins, as we repent to you again, Lord, ongoing repentance, as we talked about last week, Lord, would you by your spirit renew us and refresh us and heal us and fill us with your spirit again. We need it daily. We need it hour by hour, a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, we pray that as you do those things, as you as you receive our confession, as you, you forgive us and restore us, that you would send us out in power because the time is short and the days are evil. So Lord, use us 
for your glory. Use us to build your kingdom. Give us a passion and a holy boldness to make you known. And we would find inventive, creative ways to turn conversations towards spiritual truth and towards Jesus and towards the gospel because we love the people that you put in front of us. And let nothing else uh, distract us, deter us, deviate us from that path in these days. Lord, we pray earnestly before you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Until then, go in the power of the strength, the spirit, his might, seek and save that which is lost. Make Jesus known to your neighbor and to the nations. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.
Okay. 